started. Welcome to class. Yes, we were here to last time. Been nice to you. All right, tonight we are talking about. I have entitled the talk "A Clash of Kingdoms," and I'm going to skip over part of the story in Luke eight. There's a number of teachings that Jesus moves through in the first part of the chapter, most notably the parable of the sower and the seeds. And I'm going to skip those. We might come back to them at a later time. I have talked about the parables at CBS, and we'll probably get to some of them here. But <clears throat> I'm focusing more on what Jesus did as opposed to what he taught. So that's why we're skipping over some of that. And we're going to pick up the story in Luke, 20, Luke 8, verse 22. <clears throat> now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, let us go over onto the other side of the lake, and they launched forth. So Jesus has been spending much of his Galilean ministry in and around Capernaum, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, in Judean area. <clears throat> what was on the other side of the lake? Jesus says specifically we're going to go to the other side. What was over there? Well, let's talk about worldviews for a moment. Your worldview is the is your framework for understanding uh, priorities, beliefs, values, uh, what you believe about yourself and your purpose in the world, um, things like that. It essentially, it's how you look at things. That's your worldview. And you may have noticed that your worldview is not always what someone else's worldview is. And our worldviews are shaped by a lot of different things, but mostly our worldviews are shaped not by us, but by the things that influence us or have influenced us. So for a young child, that's their parents, that's their culture at home, that's their church life, that's their community. When you get older, uh, your worldview is shaped by things like you have, by things that you actually can choose, like books and podcasts and movies and news and media of various sorts. But it's your framework of reference for how you look at the world. And you notice that yours is not the same as everybody else's. Sometimes people that grow up in the same church but in different families have different worldviews because of how things were presented at home. What would their worldview have been like back during the time of Jesus? Well, the Jewish worldview was God-centered. Now, it was and it wasn't. You could say that, well, they were the people of God, and so their worldview was framed around their book, their story, and therefore it was right. But that's not necessarily the case, because um, you have the ability within your <coughs> framework of reference to over and underemphasize things in the scriptures and actually turn them into something that's wrong. And so uh, I think it would be more accurate to say that while the Jewish worldview was based on looking at God, it was more of an honor shame, honor shame society. In other words, there was a big deal that was made about being clean or unclean, pure versus impure, righteous versus evil, holy versus unholy, clean versus dirty, all of those things. So their life was centered around ritual and practical purity and uh, cleanliness. 
you didn't associate with you know, the unclean people, that sort of thing. You were not to defile yourself with anything that God calls unclean and unholy. And they had verses to back this up. One of those was in Isaiah 52. It says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So they would go to verses like this and would say, well, this is why uh, we need to be separate from everybody else. We need to keep ourselves apart because God said, stay away. Don't mingle with the other people around you. That's where they took this. And we've looked at a number of ways in class already at how they uh, took that to an extreme to the point where they were no longer effective as God's people living in the land of Israel. Now Jesus is telling them to go to the other side of the lake. So what's on the other side of the lake? Well, the other side of the lake from Capernaum is a place, an area called Decapolis. And Decapolis is two Greek words put together that means ten cities. Polis is their word for city or city-state. It was actually more than just a town. These were uh, semi-autonomous areas over there in Syria, the Syrian area. And Deca means ten. So they call this the ten cities. The Greek word was Decapolis. And um, 300 years or so before the time of Christ, a guy whose name you might remember, Alexander the Great, came through this area of the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee while he was on his world conquest tour. Uh, Taylor Swift goes on world tours. Alexander the Great goes on world conquest tours. It's kind of the same thing. And uh, as he was going through these areas, he would conquer them, and then he would leave garrisons of soldiers behind in various spots, and they would build communities or centers of great influence. You could think of them as their version of our outreach churches, where you take a small group of people and you leave them in an area, in this case it was soldiers, and they were there to, uh, to build a place of Greek influence. And so here we come to the time of Christ some 330 years later or so. Actually, this is closer to 400 now because Jesus was an adult. And these places still exist. Now you can imagine that they might have been in conflict with the Jews. What was the Greek religious system, or what was their worldview? Their worldview is called Hellenism. And whereas Jewish Judaism was God-centered, or their view of God-centered, Hellenism was a person-centered religion. Hellenism worshipped the human being, the mind, but a lot of it was centered around the idea of accomplishment. Who do you raise up? So the person that grew up in a Greek city, like uh, Hippos, which is likely the place that we're going to be talking about today, uh, they valued things like wealth, people with wealth, people that could sing well, great actors, people that were good sports players. They would even build statues to these people. They valued military and military victory and conquest and beauty. And so whereas, and, and they, they acted this belief, this, this religion out, a little bit in the same way that the Jews would. Now the Jews, to see their building, you had to go to Jerusalem and see the temple. For a Hellenistic city, you would go into the city and you would see statues. Have you ever hand-carved a statue out of marble? It, it takes some effort, believe it or not, especially when you don't have power tools. And they would carve these statues out of marble and other materials that they had, and they would display them in their cities as a sign of showing what they valued and lifted up. 
So when you walked into a, uh, a city over there in the Decapolis, maybe, um, the city itself imprinted its worldview on you just by you walking into the, into the, uh, into the inside the walls. And um, just to give you a little example of this, of what that might look like, or what that did look like. So let's say you came up to the city, and the city gate might look something like this. And we'll just go like that for posterity. Now it looks like a bar. But anyway, so you would go through the city gate, but you and I, when we walked up to this city, let's say we were going to visit Hippus, which is on the eastern, southern side of the Sea of Galilee, we didn't get to walk through this gate. Why not? Because that gate was reserved for Caesar, or Herod, or some other great political leader that this town looked up to and revered. When you and I went, we would go through this door, or this door over here. And then over up, up above these city gates, there might be niches set into the wall in which there were statues of their gods and of the people they revered. And so maybe when you went to this city, you saw a, a statue of Octavian or Augustus Caesar saying, this is God. And just where you had to enter this building says something about, or the city says something about what they believed. Because Caesar is God and you're not, you get to walk through the little door. That's your place in life. And those ideas clashed with those of the kingdom of Israel. <clears throat> they lived for the kingdom of God, and these pagans were lifting up some other worldview as their way of life. <clears throat> they served the God of the world. It was clear that they worshipped Satan, and good believing Jews would never have anything to do with them. Now Jesus tells his disciples, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. What did they see? What did that mean? Well, in the disciples' mind, that meant they're going to visit the kingdom of darkness. They're not going to walk. They're going to take a boat. Now, in ancient Israel, for centuries, and this bears itself out in biblical imagery as well, they viewed the sea as the abyss. That's what it represented. Now, they used the sea. Men like Peter would have grown up fishing on the water and on the lake and things like that. But it was not a place that they went to willingly just for pleasure. It was a place where they were afraid. Jesus tells them, okay, we're going to go over to the other side. And to do that, we're going to have to cross the abyss. That's the imagery that's happening in the Hebrew mind. Now, I don't know how vividly you have experienced dirt on the wall there. I don't know how vividly you've experienced spiritual warfare. where you know that you are in a spiritual battle and it feels like you are in a spiritual battle. But you recognize one of the things that happens in uh, intense spiritual conflict is you quickly come to the realization of just how vulnerable and helpless you are without the power of Jesus. Like you literally have nothing without him. And so, they get in the boat. This is what happens. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he, referring to Jesus, fell asleep. 
and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. If you're a disciple of Jesus, what would you think about what's going on? Now, some of these men were fishermen. I highly doubt they would have gone out on the lake if they believed that a storm was coming up. And now Jesus tells them, in the evening, well, actually, I don't know if it says evening. I could be wrong on that. No, here it does not specify what time of day it was. Jesus says, we're going to go over to the other side. We're going to go encroach on the power of the kingdom of darkness. And on the way there, a storm comes out of nowhere and begins to tear apart the sea. Do you suppose that they thought that this is what they get for branching out like this? I don't know. We don't know exactly what was going on in their minds, but we know <coughs> that they were terrified. The sea was trying to take them. Reading on in the story. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying, one to, saying to one another, Who is this, then, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. So I'm going to come back to this story at the end of the lesson, but we're going to leave that for now. But it almost sounds like Jesus is upset with them for being afraid at the storm. Let's read on. Following verses. <clears throat> then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So Gal Capernaum is up here. This is where they were. This is a modern map, obviously, but is up here where they set sail from, somewhere up here in this area, and it's likely that they sailed somewhere down into here around the town of Hippus, H-I-P-P-U-S, and this was one of the Hellenistic cities that was uh, colonized by those soldiers from Alexander the Great some 300 years before that, likely around this area right here. It's only 7 to 10 miles across the water. It's not that far. Just a few things to point out. <clears throat> you can see this place from Capernaum. And yet it's likely that not a single one of these people has ever set foot in this part of the world. Why? It's a place they didn't go. Now, seven to ten miles across the water may be different for them than it is for us. But in their minds, this was a pagan place. This was a place filled with unclean Gentiles who did things like eat pigs and sacrifice them to their gods. They committed adultery. They were wicked. They were unclean. They were evil. You had nothing to do with these people. When Jesus later on in Luke 15 uh, gives the story of the prodigal son, he said he went to a far country and wasted his living. This is the kind of place that those people had in their minds of a far country. This was not a place where you would go. Notice verse 27 says, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. There's something interesting about this story that I want to point out to you. Beginning of the story, it says, when Jesus had stepped out on land. At the end of the story, it says, Jesus got back into the boat. Notice it does not say they. According to the book of Luke, the disciples stayed in the boat the entire time and watched what happened. Now, I don't know exactly why, but 
put yourself put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. You're going to a place you don't want to visit. On the way there, a freak storm comes up and nearly sinks your boat. Then you get there, and the first thing you see is a demon-possessed man coming to meet you. Do you think you'd stay in the boat? What happens? <clears throat> when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So everything about the kingdoms of darkness and light is coming to a head here in front of the disciples. Why would Jesus come here? Jesus spent most of his time among the Jews. They were the people and culture that he knew. Now, I can relate with this question, and here's why. I am glad that there are people who actually want to be missionaries to Africa. I am just not one of those people. I like my comfort zone. I like what's familiar. I like what I know. I like my people. I'm not all that, I'm not saying I would never do this, but I'm saying just for my own personality, I would rather be among people that I know and understand than go somewhere else where people do things differently. So why would Jesus come here? That's quite a trip, only to turn around and go back again after a short stay. I want you to think about this verse. This is from the New Revised Standard Version in Colossians. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Why cross the sea? One of the things that Jesus said, or that Jesus gave as his reason for coming, was that he is here to find and restore his lost sheep. Now, he's already healed a demon-possessed man back in Capernaum. I believe Mark is the, is the gospel that records that story, if I'm not mistaken. And now Jesus sets sail and goes to great effort for what? Another lost sheep that's over there being held by his enemy. We're going to come back to that again at the end. <clears throat> but he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, this man certainly was a captive. Let's look at the description. It says he came to confront Jesus. He was naked against the law of Moses. Not that he cared, but this is how the disciples would have seen it. Would have seen it. It says that he lived among the tombs. Do you know what that means, literally? It means that he went out of the city to an area where they had their, uh, their tombs set in the rocks and in the caves, and he broke into one of the tombs and lived in there among the bones and the dead bodies. Do you imagine what he smelled like? Mark tells us that he would cut himself with sharp stones. Again, death 
And uh, oozing sores and wounds were both things that were considered unclean or that made you unclean according to the law of Moses. So when the disciples see this man coming, whether or not they think demon possession from the get-go, he smells like death. He's covered in sores and cuts. And he's not wearing any clothes. And this is the man that runs up to Jesus. On top of that, it says that he was crying out with a loud voice and likely had broken chains and manacles hanging from his arms and his legs. How do you think his own people saw him? So we know how the Jews saw him. What about the Greeks? They valued accomplishment. They valued people that could do something. They valued people that had uh, input into the community and <clears throat> made things happen. This man had nothing. Caesar may have been seen as king and God, but he could do nothing for this man. So here you have this guy. The Jews and the Hellenists can't do anything for him. So you know what they did? They cast him out. They got rid of him. <clears throat> they made him the village scapegoat. What do you think Jesus saw in him? See, here's the thing. We tend to think that God sees other people and ourselves the same way that we do. Right? Now, we may not say that, but that's how we act. What did Jesus see? Moving on with the story. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Here again, the imagery of the sea. That's what they're wanting to stay away from. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So we find Jesus interacting with the demon. And the, the first interaction that we see is that this demon is asking him. It says the, the Greek word means adjure. It's the same word that uh, Jesus would use to command a demon to come out of someone. This demon is trying to command Jesus to leave him alone. Jesus asks the demon's name, and the demon says, well, my name is Legion, because there are many. And we've generally taken that to mean, sorry, one second, let me back up. <clears throat> and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. There's something I wanted to point out about that specifically. The demon demands that Jesus leaves it alone. You know that's often where we find ourselves in spiritual conflict? It's easier to ignore our sin than to deal with it. And you realize that Satan doesn't really care what you do as long as you don't care about your sin. And most of the time, Satan is content if we just let him alone. What about the legion and the pigs? So we've taken legion to mean that um, it means that there were many of them there. And that is true, but there's more to the story. There is a legion of uh, Roman soldiers called Legion Fratensis. Now the Latin word for that is Legio Ex Fratensis. It was known as the 10th Legion of the Strait, and the, the strait there is like a, uh, a body of water strait, and there are a body of water between two 
sections of land. And the Legion Pretensis came into notoriety during the Civil War in which Caesar Augustus came to power. So about 60 to 80 years before this, uh, a man by the name of Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus, was fighting a war in Rome for uh, authority of the Roman Empire. And he created a group of soldiers called Legion Pretensis. And they gained notoriety during a uh, naval battle uh, just off the coast of Sicily, between Sicily and Rome. And this legion would go on to be in existence for almost 500 years. Obviously not the same people, but that body of soldiers continued working as a unit. They fought in Germany, they fought down in Egypt, and strangely enough, they were garrisoned right in this area over the time of Christ. They were there in Syria and the Decapolis as Rome's representation of Caesar. Now the demons ask, sorry, the demons say, my name is Legion. Yes, has something to do with the fact that there were many of them, but they were also referring back to who had authority over them. Then they asked to go into the pigs. You ever find that interesting? Like I've looked at this story, I'm like, why the pigs? I think I'll stay away from pigs. The symbol for the Legion Pretensis was a trident with a, with a pig on top of it. The demons are asking Jesus to leave them alone, essentially, and let us go back to our masters. Because we don't want you to cast us out. We want to stay here. And that we find out that they end up going into the abyss anyway. But let's look at the rest of the story. Luke 8, 34-39. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people from the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went, to, and he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's stop there. What can we learn from this story? I have a number of observations that I want to make from this. First off, notice the failure of Jesus' disciples to actually follow their rabbi. We've talked about this before in class. When you became a disciple, what you were saying was that I want to be just exactly like the rabbi. Notice how many times that broke down here in the story. The disciples didn't get out of the boat. They weren't standing beside Jesus when the demon-possessed man came running. As far as we know, they watched the whole thing from start to finish and then went back home. There's another aspect of that though as well. Um, a friend of mine was puzzling over this particular incident trying to answer the question of why Jesus seems upset with his disciples for being afraid in the boat. So if you're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm badly enough that your boat is starting to sink, will you be afraid? 
So why does Jesus get after them? So in trying to answer this question, his conclusion was this. Because you know that Jesus would later tell them that the miracles that I do, you're going to do greater works than these. And we see men like Peter and John later performing miracles. And so his conclusion was that Jesus actually wanted them to get up and calm the storm themselves. Instead of having to wake him up to do it for them. I disagree with him on that. And here's why. Why was Jesus sleeping in the boat? Was he really that tired? You see, often what happens when we get into a storm, when we find ourselves in the middle of a storm, is we respond like the disciples, and the first thing we want to do is get out. We want Jesus to wake up, fix this storm, and fix it now. And you know what the example that Jesus was giving his disciples? It's actually possible for you to sleep. It's actually possible for you to be at rest, even though the storm is still happening. And had they really been able to be disciples at the moment, I'm not faulting them for this, but had they really been able to follow their rabbi in this particular instance, they could have been at rest. Whether or not the storm continued, they could have been at rest because he was. So it is possible, Jesus is saying, to find peace in the middle of a storm. Something else that's going on here. We uh, hear a lot about racism in today's society. And we forget that even our early church fathers were quite, quite racist themselves. Notice the disciples didn't want to get out of the boat to an unclean land. Before Jesus went up into heaven in Acts, Chapter 1, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And uh, he tells them to go out. And he tells them, begin in Jerusalem, and then in Samaria, and in Al Judea, and then into the uttermost parts of the earth. That's everywhere. Some 20 years after this time, Peter is on a missionary journey, and he has a vision about going and eating things that are unclean. Peter had to have that vision three times before he was willing to go and sit down with Gentiles and lead them to the Lord. And then later on in the book of, I think it's Galatians, we find out that Paul is rebuking Peter again for still refusing to sit down with Gentiles and eat with them. That was so firmly ingrained in their minds that you need to stay away from these people that even the apostles had a hard time overcoming their own bias and their own worldview and their own upbringing to reach out to the people that they considered to be unclean. And my point is this. We can have really strong views about what we are and are not willing to do. But are you willing to do what God asks of you? even if it seems hard. Even if it means you look bad in the eyes of your culture and the eyes of your friends, are you willing to break the expectations in order to look like Jesus? Next observation I have. What is your reaction when God rescues the lost sheep around you? Did you notice the response of the villagers to the man that was healed? That they weren't happy about it? 
Here's why I think. This is, this is not original with me. This is an, an article that I read a number of years ago about this particular story. Let me set this up for you this way. Many families, communities, churches, even voluntary service units have a scapegoat or two. What do I mean by that? Well, you often have a person or two, whether they deserve it or not, that gets the blame for almost everything. They're the rotten egg. They're the one that makes life hard for everybody else. They're the one that just simply doesn't have it together. And many people are just kind of happy to let them be that way. Do you know why? Because it means that I can blame my problems on them. Anything that happens, well, that's just their fault. That's just how they are. That's just, that's life with them. And maybe they do have problems, and maybe it is easy to blame everything on them problem is we get so used to that that we might not like when they do well and find healing. You know why? Because that forces me to have to deal with my own problems. And oftentimes the people that we really don't like, we'd rather they just stay down there because it's more convenient for me. And I don't think we're that far removed from these villagers. I don't think we're as far removed from them as we'd like to think question for that is, are you able to rejoice when God is at work, even among the people that you despise? Second, third observation I have is, will you get out of the boat? This man was probably in a more pitiful state than anybody you will ever meet. But the reality is that that used to be me. And if you're saved today, that used to be you too. You used to live in the tombs. The person next to you might still be there. Are you, will, are you willing to be the person that reaches out with the hands of Jesus? And will you care, like Jesus did here, about the person that everyone else has rejected if that's what God calls you to? Finally, what are you doing with the healing that God has worked in your life? It's kind of an odd question. Here's what I mean by that. I think it's easy for us, I know it is for me, to see the things that I'm struggling with, my problems, etc., to go to God to find healing for those things and then just sit and enjoy that. And there is a time, certainly, to rest and to be at peace and to just experience the presence of God. But there is also a time to tell your story. And I think, as I place myself in this story, I think one of the most heartbreaking moments is this man who has experienced freedom for probably the first time in his life finds healing and his first impulse is I don't ever want to leave and Jesus tells him I want you to go back you imagine how that felt everything he was was back at the city the people that knew who he used to be the people that he hurt all of those things and Jesus said I want you to go back and I want you to say what happened to you 
and I want you to tell your story. And later on in the book of Luke, Jesus is going to come back through this area on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And do you know what he finds? He finds believers. Because one person was willing to tell his story. The question to you is, what are you doing with yours? Because all of you, unless I'm quite mistaken, have experienced healing in your lives. And do you know what we say? You know what our excuse is? I'm not who I should be. I'm not where I want to be yet. And so my story isn't really worth anything because I still have so much work to do on myself. And you know what, you're exactly right. But because you found healing in, in some areas, that means you're able to give that to other people as well. And you need to be willing to tell your story. Someday you're going to have children, many of you. You need to tell them what your story is. You need to tell them I was in the tombs, and this is the bondage that I was in, and this is how God redeemed me from that. You need to tell that to your children, and you need to start now by telling it to other people as well. You never know the impact that can happen when you share what God has done in your life. Those are the things that I see in these stories. We live in a two-kingdom world. All Satan wants for you to do is to sit back and relax. And you can. Or you can choose to fight and to bring his kingdom wherever you go. Thank you. You're dismissed. <clears throat> March 18 meeting in here.